This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Picture the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Picture, picture an upper room with the oil lamps flickering. And there is Jesus with his disciples. Facing, he's facing the cross the next day. Later that night, they will go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested. But before that, in the upper room, Jesus pours into the hearts of his disciples, pouring into them, preparing them for what is to come. And God has put it all in his word so that it wasn't just the disciples that night being prepared, but it's disciples today being prepared. We are being prepared as Jesus speaks to us in the intimate setting of the upper room. Let's look at John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15 and verses 1 through 8. Just one of the most precious passages in the New Testament. Many of you know it. It's about spiritual intimacy with Christ. Spiritual intimacy with Christ. John chapter 15. And follow along with me in your copy of God's word as we look at verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be, be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray this morning to be the kind of disciples that live in spiritual intimacy with Christ. What a precious passage this is. We thank you that in your providence that, that you enabled what happened in that upper room and what was said to be recorded so that it would be not just for the disciples that night, but that it is for us today seeking to live for you. And Lord, we, we know that everything about our lives has to flow from a relationship with you. We, as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to stay connected 
to Christ, abiding in Christ. Would you show us this morning through your word what spiritual intimacy with the Savior is all about? It's in his name that we pray, amen. Tim Keller, in his wonderful book on prayer, uh, tells a story of uh, Edmund Clowney, one of his, his teachers. When Edmund Clowney was in seminary, he was dealing with a, a heavy personal issue. And so Ed Clowney goes in to see one of his teachers, Professor John Murray. And he shares with him the matter that he was dealing with. And John Murray said, let's pray. When John Murray prayed for him, it was as if the heavens just opened up. And Ed Clowney said that Dr. Murray prayed with a sense of intimate familiarity with God combined with a sense of absolute majesty, God's absolute majesty. And having read about the life of John Murray, I can tell you that that was coming from a place of spiritual intimacy with Christ. What's, what's that all about? How can we have it? That's what we see in this text. The first thing that we see here in verse 1 is who Jesus is. Who he is. Let's look at verse 1 together. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the true vine. Now, this is the last of seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Jesus, in these seven sayings, is telling us, this is, this is who I am. And so, in 635, he says, I am the bread of life. In 812, he says, I am the light of the world. In 107, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. In 1011, he says, I am the good shepherd. In 1125, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now here in 15.1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am. Does that sound familiar? So, in Exodus... When, when God encounters Moses at the burning bush and Moses asks God, who are you? When I go before the Israelites, who should I tell them sent me? How does God reply? Exodus 3 and verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is Yahweh, the most holy name of God. I am. Fast forward to one day when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he says to them, you know, Abraham saw my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. And they said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? How does Jesus respond? 
John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to exist eternally as God. I am. I am the true vine. Now, in the Old Testament, the imagery of the vine was used for Israel. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 presents an incredible picture of this, this imagery that Jesus is drawing on from, from here in John 15. Isaiah chapter 5, and let's look beginning with verse 1. God is the speaker here, and he says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So, so God here is, 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 is talking about putting, painting a picture of a vine that is planted in the absolute optimum place, in the most fertile soil. And that, that soil has been cleared of stones. And then it wasn't just any vine that was planted there in this fertile soil. It was the, the finest vine that was planted there. The best vine. In fact, the owner was so confident that they had already dug out a wine press. They had built a tower. It was going to flourish. And he expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Verse 3, so now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? In other words, God is saying here, this is a vine that failed. He's comparing Israel to a vine that fails even after being given every opportunity to flourish. Turn to Psalm 80, Psalm number 80. Because in the 80th Psalm, again, we see the same image of Israel, and we're going to see how this connects to John 15, 1. Psalm 80, and beginning with verse 8. Psalm 80, beginning with verse 8. You dug up a vine from Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. So what is this? He's referring here to the Exodus, of course. God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He had taken them out of that. They were a vine that he had taken out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then he drove out the nations and he he put them in a land of milk and honey. Verse 9, you cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river. And so for a while... Everything looked promising with the vine. It it, it appeared to be flourishing, but sin enters the picture in Israel. And what happens? Verse 12, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its fruit? Boars from the forest tear at it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of armies. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine. The root your right hand planted, the sun that you made strong for yourself, it was cut down and burned. They perished at the rebuke of your countenance. And so again, Israel appears to be a vine that despite being given every opportunity has failed So what ultimately is going to restore them? The true vine. Verse 17. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand. With the son of man you have made strong for yourself. So what is the only answer for this this failing vine? Who who will bring restoration? The man at your right hand. The son of man that you have made strong for yourself. That's Jesus. The true vine. The vine that will not fail. Jesus says, I am the true vine. That's who he is. Second, why we must abide in him. Why we must abide in him. We see it in verses two through six. Look at verse two. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So we have two statements here in verse 2. The first one is that every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. Now, is Jesus saying here that, that genuine believers can lose their salvation? No, he's not. We know that just from the Gospel of John alone. We know it from the rest of the Bible. But, but just in the Gospel of John, Jesus says in John 6, 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. 
John 10 and verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No, the people that Jesus is talking about here in verse two, when he talks about God, uh, God re- re- removing them, he's talking about people who never had a salvation to lose. They, they maybe appeared to have salvation for a while, but there was no fruit. The second statement that he makes here in verse 2 is that every branch that produces fruit, he, is that he prunes, he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Um, on, in our yard, the previous owners left us with tons of plants, flowers, shrubs, I mean, and, it, and, it's, and it's wonderful, but I had to get educated about all this stuff and really educated about how to take care of it. And one of the most counterintuitive things to me is pruning because you're cutting it back. You're cutting stuff back. And I'm always like, I'm going to kill it if I cut it back. But no, when you, when you cut it back, the result is that it's even more beautiful. But see, I, I, I can mess up with pruning because <laughs> I can be too timid about pruning sometimes. I don't, I don't prune deep enough or I could get carried away and I could prune too much. And sometimes I don't know exactly when to prune because you prune all these different things at, and during different months and I go on YouTube and I do the best that I can, but still I don't always get it right about exactly you know, when you prune or how you prune. But God is the master gardener, the master pruner in our lives. And he knows exactly how to prune us and when to prune us so that we will flourish and bear even more fruit. Hebrews 12.11 just pictures this so beautifully. No discipline. Seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Praise God. Verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. It is so crucial that as believers we, we, we get this. That, that, that we are We are already clean if we belong to Christ. You say, well, but you know what? I still struggle so much with sin. And sometimes I blow it. I fail in that struggle. I understand. Believe me. But practically, yes. We will continue to struggle with sin until the day that we're glorified. Until the day that Christ returns or until the day that we go to be with him, whichever day comes first. We'll continue to struggle with sin, practically, but positionally, you are already clean if you're in Christ. You are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it is super important that we understand that as we do things like battle sin. 
Because we need to understand that as we battle sin in our lives, we are not doing that in order to gain God's acceptance and love. We already have that. We battle sin and we seek to obey him because we are already accepted and loved. We are already positionally completely clean and clothed in his righteousness. And so we, we battle sin now and we seek to live for the Lord and obey the Lord because we know that he has first loved us and that he loves us and accepts us based on the perfect merits of Christ. And so for, therefore the response of our hearts is that we love him and we, de- and we desire to, to live for him and obey him. I love what Ralph Erskine says about this. Erskine says, the believer kills sin because God loves him, but the legalist, that God may love him. Do you see the difference? All the difference in the world. Verse four. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. So the word remain here, a lot of times translated as abide. What does that word mean? I love the way that D.A. Carson um, unpacks this. Carson says that word abide, remain. Here's what it means. The point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine Constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. First of all, to abide means continuous dependence on the vine. Just like a little child is continually dependent upon his or her parent. That's, That's what it means. No wonder Jesus gives these illustrations like, you know, unless you change and become like little children, you, you, you can't enter the kingdom of God, right? We, we've, we've, we've got to change and become like, like little kids, continually dependent upon the vine. Second, constant reliance upon him. It means that we have to unlearn our deeply ingrained Patterns of self-reliance. Persistent imbibe, spiritual imbibing of his life. And this, this, brings, this brings us to the spiritual disciplines of, of prayer, of God's word, of, of the need to, to involve ourselves and, and be in close fellowship with, with other believers in the church family. And he writes as this, How do we remain in him? We must remain in the community that knows and loves him and celebrates him as its Lord. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. We can't go it alone, but we must also remain as people of prayer and worship in our own intimate private lives. We must make sure to be in touch, in tune with Jesus. That's what it means to abide. Look at verse five. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. What kind of fruit is Jesus talking about here? 
Is he talking about the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 tells us about? A transformed character through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or is he talking about evangelistic fruit? Is he talking about winning people to Christ, making disciples, ministry? Well, I would agree with D.A. Carson that to choose between those two things would be reductionistic. The point is that Jesus says you will bear much fruit. And that means not either or, but both. Fruit in terms of a transformed character, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and impact on other lives evangelistically discipling others ministry to others it's not an either or it's a both and much fruit look at verse six jesus says if anyone does not remain in me he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers they gather them throw them into the fire and they are burned again the jesus here is is talking about people who never belong to him Because real believers, genuinely converted people, born-again people, are going to produce fruit. Some may produce more than others. But there is no such thing as a believer who is fruitless. The third thing we see here in verses 7 and 8 is what he promises. What he promises Verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now here in verse 7 is another stunning promise about prayer. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And I say another stunning promise about prayer because what do we see in chapter 14? Look at chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14. Remember what Jesus said there? Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we talked about the fact when we covered this text in verse 14, in chapter 14, that To pray in Jesus' name, it's not some kind of a magical formula where we just kind of pray whatever we want and attach Jesus' name to the end of it. To pray in his name means that we're we're praying things that he would sign his name to. We're, We're praying things that would bring honor and glory to God. But listen, we should not downplay the the promises about prayer that are being made here. You can't read verses like these and, and conclude anything else but that Jesus is calling upon us to pray with audacity. To pray even with a a a shameless boldness. Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary in the Congo for many years. And one night, she 
delivered a premature infant. And the mom died during childbirth. Leaving not only this premature baby, but the baby's little two-year-old sister who was crying. And Helen knew that what this what this little infant most needed was an incubator. They didn't have an incubator in the jungle. The best they could do would be a hot water bottle, and they had one left. And so she, she dispatched one of the student nurses to go and, and fill up their last hot water bottle, and the student nurse came back a few minutes later in absolute distress because in the process of filling up the water bottle, it had burst, and it was ruined, and they had no more. The baby managed to make it through the night. And the next morning, Helen went to the, the, the orphanage in the village. And she told the orphans about what had happened the night before, about the mom dying during childbirth, and about the little premature infant that was struggling for life, and about the little sister. And then she prayed with them. And when they prayed... One of the little orphans, a little 10-year-old girl named Ruth, prayed like this. Ruth prayed, dear God, please send a hot water bottle. And God, send it today. It'll be no good tomorrow because the baby will be dead. Send a hot water bottle today. And Ruth said, and uh, Helen said, I inwardly gasped when she prayed that because of the audacity of the request. But Ruth wasn't done. (laughs) Ruth then prayed, and dear God, please send the little sister a doll baby so that she'll know that Jesus loves her. And Helen Rosevere said of that moment, I scarcely knew whether to say amen. I mean, I believe God can do anything, of course. But I knew the only way this could happen would be to receive a parcel from home, and I had been there four years and had never received a parcel. And if somebody did send a parcel, who would think to send a hot water bottle to a place near the equator? (laughs) Later that afternoon, Helen was teaching a class of, of nurses. And someone burst in the room, and they said, there's a car at your house. (laughs) They rarely saw cars. And so they dismissed class. They went outside. The car had gone, but there remained a 22-pound parcel. (laughs) So the orphans came running, 30 or 40 of them. They're all gathered around the parcel. They're all all pulling at the the strings on it. Excitement is, is building Helen reached in, pulled out some clothes, some food, some bandages, and then she felt it. Could it really be? She pulled out a brand new hot water bottle. She began to cry. She said, I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. 
little Ruth rushed forward at that moment. And she said, if God sent the hot water bottle, he must have sent the doll baby as well. And Ruth reached in. Helen Helen reached in. And she pulls out a beautifully dressed doll. I want to be more like Ruth, don't you? The faith of a child. Jesus delights in that. God delights in the faith of a child in a shameless boldness. The audacity that that little girl demonstrates. And and listen, when God answers prayer, who gets the glory? God does. God does. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about identifying spiritual fruitfulness. And part of the fruitfulness that we see here is the fruit of answered prayer. Let's pray together right now. Father, we pray for lives that abide in Christ, that enjoy spiritual intimacy with the Savior. We we pray that you you would turn us from being people who are not dependent upon you, who, are, who, are, who, are, who default to our own self-reliance. Lord, would you transform us into people who are continually dependent upon you, constantly reliant upon you, constantly spiritually imbibing of you, walking closely with you, staying connected to you. We thank you for the incredible invitation and the opportunity that you give us to enjoy that kind of spiritual intimacy with with you. And we thank you for the incredible promises that you have made to your people. And as we just continue to pray right now, listen, it should be obvious from everything that we're saying here, this is a relationship. This is a relationship with God that we're talking about. And I would ask you, whether you're here, whether you're watching a stream today or at any point in the future, do you know Christ personally? Do you have a a relationship with him? He invites you to that. Everything necessary for you to have that has been done. This is not something you can earn. It's it's been done for you. It was done on a cross as Jesus shed his blood. It was done as he rose from the tomb victorious. Our response to the good news of the gospel is to repent and believe. Repent means to turn. Turn from trying to do life your own way. Make it work your own way. Turn from that. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Rely upon him completely. What he's already done for you. His death for your sins on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. 
Just cast yourself into his arms. And you'll experience forgiveness. You'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit beginning to transform you from the inside out in ways that you never could. And you'll have a home forever with him. Turn to Christ. Trust him now. Father, as we, as we, as we continue to, to come before you, we pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of anybody here or anybody watching who does not yet know Christ. Lord, would your spirit open hearts to respond to the glorious good news of the gospel. Lord, for, for us who are in Christ, Lord, who were in Christ when we began this service, Lord, we desire to grow in you. We desire to grow more closely in our walk with you. Lord, would, would, you, would you grow us? Would you change us? Lord, would you help us abide and walk with Christ more intimately is our prayer. And we make it in the name of Jesus. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 